Hello everyone and welcome to season four of You Scared of This, the weekly podcast where two grown men watch every single episode of Nickelodeon's classic TV horror anthology show for kids, Are You Afraid of the Dark, and try to determine if it's still scary. And we want to thank you for soldiering through us on our winter break, but we've made it out the other side and we're ready for another season of Are You Afraid of the Dark. I'm David Dykus, joined as I always am by my best friend, live from the heart of Texas, Eli Phillips. Hello, party people. Welcome back. Woo! Season four. All right. You know, it's always really refreshing to have a break after the Fradies. Like, by the time we're done with a season, I'm ready for winter break or summer break or, like, mid-September break, whatever we're going to end up with next. But it's also always really good to come back. I completely agree. After watching Are You Afraid of the Dark for 13 straight weeks, having to watch every single episode at least two or three times. I mean, I love the show, but, you know, you need a break. Yeah, uh, but, but yeah, we're... so I'm I'm really excited we're back, I'm really excited we're in season four, and I'm really excited that we're going to be reviewing The Tale of Cutter's Treasure, part one. I'm excited as well, our first two-part episode, The Tale of Cutter's Treasure. Yeah. But before we get uh, to that, we have to go through the usual rigmarole. <laughs> Eli, how are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, I'm, I'm doing all right. You heard it here how first, are you doing? He's doing all right. Uh, I'm also doing all right. I'm, I'm braving the fierce Nashville winter. Oh, is it bad there? No, not really. It's the temperature has hovered between forty and seventy degrees the past few weeks. So, yep, same here. Uh, but yeah, I'm doing okay. Just playing a lot of video games and watching. Are you afraid of the dark? Uh, I started on Fire Emblem Awakening. And, Ooh, how are you uh, liking that? Man, it is a real RPG. You forget how much of a real RPG Pokemon isn't until you get into a real RPG with a shit ton of like cutscenes and, and dialogue boxes and just shit. Now, I played Fire Emblem Awakening a couple years ago when it came out, and I I enjoyed it very much. Uh, what are your impressions of it so far? I, I'm actually, like, not very far into it at all. I'm in the opening moments of it. Um, I only play it while I'm walking my dog. And, okay. <laughs> yeah, and so far it, it suffers, like I said, from all the things I kind of would have expected, which is, like, a ton of dialogue and a ton of cutscenes and all of the politics and story of a Fire Emblem game. I love uh, tactics-style RPGs so much. I like Final Fantasy Tactics. I like Tactics Advance. I liked Advanced Wars. Um, I love those types of games, but the storylines where I'm just like looking at a, a drawing of a person while a wall of text shows up, and then a drawing of another person replying, I don't really get into that sort of stuff as much. There is a lot of that, but I promise if you stick with it, it is a great tactical RPG once you get into the, the meat of the game. Yeah. But the real fun, yeah, of course, with this Fire Emblem game and with the newer Fire Emblem games is making your characters have sex with one another. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm looking forward to making characters do it. Arranging their marriages and the conception of their children. Have you gotten to, I know we talk about video games too much on our show, but have you gotten to uh, the Pokemon breeder yet in Pokemon Sun and Moon? Not yet. I uh, I have not made a whole lot of progress in Pokemon since uh, my last update, so. I can't remember when the Pokemon breeder was introduced into Pokemon games, and I can't remember what they say to you in the older games. But in Pokemon Sun and Moon, when you go to the Pokemon breeder and they give you an egg, they say, hey, your Pokemon had this egg. It's a mystery how it got it, but you want it, don't you? And it's like, your job is I think is I know Pokemon how that egg got breeder. there. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> what do you mean it's a mystery where that egg came from? I gave you two Eevees, and you gave me an Eevee egg. 
I mean, come on, Mr. Mr. Breeder. Like, even my in-game avatar is, like, 16 11. years old. He knows like, what's what. I just, I'm going to be amused if Fire Emblem hand, handles it the same way. Just so you don't get your hopes up. I mean, you don't see penetration or anything. <laughs> it is a similar situation where the characters get married and a kid happens to show up. But you never yeah. see the conception. <laughs> My hope was just that they would be like, hey, we had this kid. We don't know where it came from, but you want us to keep it, don't you? There's there's no God of War style sex minigame where you get to completion if you do it right. That would be gross in any game. Like, there's not a single game I can imagine where I want there to be a sex minigame, especially not like a Nintendo game. I love the God of War game. The God of War games are so fucking stupid, but like the fact that you get all your health refilled if you have sex correctly. <laughs> That's definitely how that works. Just like in real life. All right. Well, now that now that video game talk is out of the way, let's let's touch upon some really quick nude business. That's right, because it is a, a big time of the year. It's award season. That's right. We we gave you a taste of Nickelodeon Kids Choice Awards news a couple weeks ago when we announced that John Cena would be or would be hosting the 2017 Kids Choice Awards, but. Um, we got a boatload of news in the last 24 hours when all of the nominees were announced. And it is a lot of nominees. Oh my god, it's overwhelming. I, I was blown away by the number of categories they had this year. And each category, there are 28 categories. Which is insane. 28 categories! Yep. Just for reference, I looked at the Kids' Choice Award winners, like list of winners from 1997. Just to see, do you know how many categories there were then? Fucking eight. Wow, not even ten. Less than ten. That was it. This list is out of control. Favorite viral musician? Favorite EDM artist? Favorite hashtag squad? Fuck you, Nickelodeon. (laughs) It's not often that I say that, but fuck you. Which is like an ensemble, like, team in fiction. Yeah, I mean, this is this may be the most 2010s list of stuff in history. The fact that they have favorite hashtag squad and favorite viral musician, yeah, definitely make this a, a, a very dated list. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot happening at the Kids' Choice Awards. I'm sure it'll be coming back. When is the when did the Kids' Choice Awards air? I'm not gonna watch them, but March 11th. So we have a we have a, a few weeks before we have to report on the winners of these million categories yeah we'll give you our our full rundown from the red carpet when it happens uh but for now thankfully we don't have to worry about any of that all we have to worry about is cutter's treasure yes the tale of cutter's treasure an episode that originally aired along with its uh second half on october the 1st 1994 yep and this episode was written by Master Wordsmith Chloe Brown, and directed by series creator and friend of the show, DJ McHale. DJ is uh, back at the helm, and he is being pretty decadent, making a two-part episode with everyone's favorite characters. But we'll get to that in a minute. This episode begins in a manner kind of similar to the very first episode of the show, with Gary stepping forward into the the stone circle and just kind of doing a monologue. Which I really enjoyed. (laughs) Yeah, I, I enjoyed this a lot, too. He talks about how each one of the different members of the Midnight Society has their own kind of story to tell. And yeah. each time someone makes an entrance, he talks about their style. Like Tucker tells adventure stories, and Betty Ann tells macabre stories. Yeah, he makes note of all this stuff, and it's really interesting to see them sort of hang a lantern on it. 
But he says that tonight they're doing something that's never been done before. One tale told by two people. And this really yeah, is a dream team collaboration because it's Gary, whose stories we've always, I think, he has a pretty good track record. Yeah. And our main and then, man, Frank. <laughs> yeah, when he says that two people are going to be telling the story, Frank is the last person to walk up to the fire. And he walks up behind Gary and stands next to him. And uh, everyone in the Midnight Society is super excited about this idea that Gary and Frank have become a power couple. This is a story too big for one man to tell, so they're going to have to do it together. So they each sit on an arm of the stone throne. Did you notice that? No, I didn't. I wasn't. I didn't see how they arranged <laughs> themselves. <laughs> yeah, uh, they each sit. Sadly, on one, one does not of... sit in the other's lap. <laughs> <laughs> they just lay across the throne like Jesse and James. <laughs> <laughs> Prepare for trouble. Make it double. Is Tucker Meowth in this? Uh, parallel. <laughs> Tucker is absolutely meow. <laughs> He's just riding around on Gary's shoulders. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Frank actually defers to Gary on this one, which I really like. He lets Gary do the submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society, and he lets him throw the coffee creamer. And Gary throws the coffee creamer like like a person, you know, flipping the coin uh, at the opening of a football game. He throws the coffee creamer like straight up in the air above the fire. And when it falls, at the same time, they drop the title. The tale of Cutter's Treasure. We open in Pirate Times. Pirate Times, and it's a cave. And we see an, a scraggly Irish pirate making his way uh, through a room full of treasure with a dagger, like he's going to stab someone. And he says something like, Cutter, I stab thee in the name of all the people you've stabbed. <laughs> Paraphrasing. Uh, but he turns a big chair around to discover a skeleton. Ah, it's a decoy. And just as yeah. he discovers the skeleton, a huge hulking figure steps out of the darkness. Carving a baguette. Yeah, just stabbing a baguette with a, another big knife. It's not even like... It's not even big enough to be a baguette. I think this man is just, like, poking a hoagie. <laughs> Either way, a loaf of bread is being mutilated. We're spending a lot of the time... The tale of poker's scene. hoagie. <laughs> we see the titular villain, uh, Cutter the Pirate, uh, step out of the darkness. His face is concealed, but he tells this Irish pirate uh, that he's... Gonna poke him. The pirate tries to place a curse on Cutter, but Cutter disregards this, pulls out his sword, and wishes the... The Irishman, a bloody death. And may your death be a bloody one. <laughs> Through the power of editing, we segue from Cutter killing this Irish pirate to modern-day suburbia, where two shitty little kids are playing pirate in the backyard. Yep, they got some, like, neon plastic pirate scimitars. One of these kids does not matter. The other one is one of our two young protagonists, a goofy little kid named Max. With a, like, mushroomish bowl top, or bowl cut. Yeah, a very 90s kid wearing a 90s outfit with a 90s haircut. Uh, and in short order, we also meet his older brother, our other young protagonist, a wannabe cool guy named Rush. Listen, listen, don't you disrespect, because... We gotta talk about Rush for a second. Uh, we're gonna have a lot to say about Rush. What did you wanna say? Rush is played by the actor Dominique Zamprogna, which I did not know that name existed, but a cool name. Uh, Dominique goes on to play 
the cool dude in Camp Nowhere, the movie I probably watched the most as a, like, eight-year-old. Seriously? Oh, I fucking loved Camp Nowhere for some reason. You're, you're gonna kill me, but I've never seen it. <laughs> you, I'll be honest with you, I actually went back and watched Camp Nowhere after you and I watched Blank Check, and you can probably skip Camp Nowhere. <laughs> uh, he also plays... Uh, he was, like, the cool kid in everything he was in. Like, that was his thing. He was 90s cool kid. He's been in Are You Afraid of the Dark. He was Jed in uh, in one of the earlier episodes. Which one was it? Tale of the Full Moon. Tale of the Full Moon, yeah, he was Jed. Yeah. Uh, he was in the never-ending story. Um, fucking, maybe he wasn't in Camp Nowhere. Maybe I'm confusing him with some other kid. But he was in the never-ending story TV series where he played Atreyu, who was the cool character in that as well. Um, oh shit! He, I didn't realize he was a Treyu. Not in the movie though, just in the TV series. Oh, that it does not matter then. Yeah, he always plays a cool dude in all the stuff that he's in, and here he is playing the cool older brother Rush, who, when we first meet him, is getting his Mac on. So you want to come over tonight and uh, watch TV or something? Sure, sounds like fun. This character has quite an arc over the the first half of this episode. Max just wants to have fun and play, but Rush has one thing on his mind. (laughs) Rush needs some makeouts. He needs them real bad. So bad that he's not even being subtle about it. Like, he, when we first meet Rush, he is sitting on a picnic blanket in their backyard with a teen girl trying to, like, work up the nuts to put his hand on her hand. Yeah, he's trying to lay the Mac down to this girl named Sandy, when for no reason Max decides to to just fuck with him by turning on the sprinkler and blasting them both with water. Which is awesome. And just as Rush is about to destroy his little brother, uh, their parents come home and pull him apart. And tell them that they have a babysitter for the weekend. Yeah, the parents are about to go out of town. They're going to leave the kids with a babysitter. And obviously, neither one of them is a big fan of this. So they hatch a plan. A plan I love. (laughs) Yeah, a a beautiful plan that plays out. Once the parents leave, their babysitter, who is a little old lady, arrives at the door. She knocks on the door, and one of the brothers says, I'm sorry, but we decided not to go away this weekend. Oh. Yes, um, the boys are sick. We decided to stay home today. The kids are sick. She says, well, I can take care of sick kids. The voice from behind the door says, they have the measles. And a hand, like an entire arm covered in brown dots, emerges through the mail slot holding an envelope. Yeah, they they give her the check that their parents had told them to give her. The little old lady is so disgusted and horrified by this that she falls on her ass. (laughs) As she stares at this fake measled hand. Like the hand has fucking leprosy or something. She just falls away from it, takes the check and very quickly leaves, just takes the bait. And the two brothers high five. Yes, we did it. Uh, immediately, Rush, the older brother, starts scheming to get Sandy over so he can he can get his tongue back down her throat. But Max is not going to have that. No, no. Uh, Max says that if Rush wants to be left alone, he needs to go buy him a magic kit. And what better place to buy a magic kit than... <laughs> The most reputable business in town. The Magic Mansion. Sardo's Magic Mansion. So, are we to assume that, like, any time the Magic Mansion appears, it means that, like, all of those stories took place in a shared universe? Like... Yes. Is is this a world where, uh... Oh, fuck, what was his name? Brother Septimus. Yeah, so are we to assume that this is a world where Brother Septimus exists? Like, the same world? It has to! 
I mean, that that idea is only going to be reinforced with the next scene when That's Rush true. goes to the Magic Mansion. Because the, the magic set that Rush has to buy for Max is not just any magic set. This is a very specific one. This is the brand name Shandu Magic Kit. Yeah. And on the front of the box are Shandu the Great and his young apprentice. Very obvious callback to the tale of the magician's assistant. We get so many callbacks in this scene because Max goes in and, of course, the the shop is run by Sardo, who goes through all of his usual uh, bits and bobs. That's Sardo! When we actually, when we cut to the scene, Sardo is causing an explosion in a cauldron. Rush is not impressed by this. Sardo is suggesting, I could make you a love potion. And when Max says, or when Rush says, I don't think I need a love potion, and grabs the Shandu magic kit, he says, a flask of popularity potion. This is, of course, a reference to the dark music, or not to the dark music, to the dark dragon. Tale of the dark dragon. Yeah. We have to assume this takes, these all take place in the same universe. Yeah. Rush doesn't want to buy anything extra. He wants to get the Shandu magic kit for Max, and he wants to get the fuck out of there, despite He's He's Sardo. got things to do. He's a busy man. Yeah. Sardo is trying to, like, squeeze every bit of money out of this horny teen that he can. As Rush is leaving, he notices one more thing, and that is a, a treasure chest, essentially, in the window. Sardo says that anyone who opens it can have whatever's inside free of charge. Uh, but he says, don't bother, it's impossible, the thing doesn't open, and Sardo walks off. Rush walks over and effortlessly cracks open the treasure chest. Yeah, it just pops open for him. Uh, he calls over Sardo. Sardo is baffled by this and excited uh, because he says he's going to get $500. No, 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 500 dolls. 5,000, it's 5,000. He's going to get $5,000, and he cuts himself off because he doesn't want the kid to know how much it's worth. So. Five 5,000 dolls. He's going yeah. to get $5,000 dolls from an eccentric collector. Yeah. Uh, and he says that Russia's treasure is he gets whatever is inside the box, which is, of course, a shitty dagger. Yeah, a shitty dagger, as we saw earlier in the episode, and a spyglass that, according to Rush, doesn't even work. Yeah, when Rush looks inside of it, it's all darkness. When he takes all this crap home, Max claims he can see through the spyglass and it works fine. By this point, Rush does not care. He's done. He's he's lived up to his end of the bargain, and now Max has to leave him alone as he goes about wooing this woman. And who yep. shows up at the door at that moment but Sandy, rearing and ready to get to first base. <laughs> can we talk about the fact that in this scene, Rush is wearing what looks like one of his mother's shirts? It's this. Oh like, God, we've got to talk about the shirt that he's wearing in this scene. He's wearing it demands attention. He's wearing billowy pleated khakis and a, a coral button-up shirt, like a silk. He's wearing a fucking parachute. He's wearing a bright orange neon parachute with billowy sleeves. This is the shirt equivalent of like hammer pants. Yeah, Sandy must be into it because the two of them are leaning in for a smooch right when Max sort of slips in between them and pokes the spyglass in between their lips. Yeah, just as Rush is about to achieve his his one goal, Max breaks his end of the deal and runs down and starts talking about the spyglass. He says, the spyglass started spinning on its own. It started moving on its own. And Rush is like, I give zero fucks. Get out of here. He runs Max off and tells him that if he stays down there any longer, he's going to make Max eat the spyglass. Max goes back upstairs and... Uh, he says right this right in front of Sandy. Yeah. Uh, Sandy is kind of turned off by this, and uh, right as they're about to smooch again, she gets up off the couch and says she wants to get a snack from the kitchen, delaying the inevitable kiss. Well, hang up. We need to talk about Rush's strategy here. 
He tries to make conversation, doesn't work. Tries to turn on the TV, doesn't work. So eventually he resorts to the nuclear option. (laughs) He looks her dead in the eyes. Where he just turns to her very, very, very awkwardly and says, I don't suppose there's any chance we could make out. (laughs) And she almost goes for it. Confession time, Eli. You ever use that line? Um... I'm having to think about you this can, really you hard. You can not comment if you'd rather not. I'm having to use. I'm having to think on this really hard because I don't remember ever saying it, which is not to say that I didn't. But I do know that a girl said it to me one time. Ooh, a reversal of fortune. Yeah, and and we did. It worked on me. I. I'm not too proud to say it. I've used that line, <laughs> <laughs> and it resulted in makeouts. <laughs> Yeah, like, after watching this episode, I'm shocked that it worked for us, rather than, like, going and getting a snack. Because that seems more in line with my, like, demeanor these days. But as as the quest for makeouts continues, Max goes back up to his room with the spyglass. And when he sets it down, uh, a few paranormal things happen. First, it appears the window has opened itself, and spooky mist is pouring in through it. So he goes <sighs> over and closes the window. Then we get some spooky sounds coming from inside the closet, and he goes to check on that. And as all this is happening, lo and behold, the spyglass starts moving on its own. Yep. It like rolls it starts off rolling the table. around on the desk and then rolls to the floor. Yeah. Rush pops in briefly to grab some CDs to set the mood. And uh, nearly scares the shit out of his little brother. When Rush leaves the room, the spyglass is on the floor and Max goes to grab it. And this is when we get probably like the best scare of the episode, right? An awesome scene, yeah. I mean, first, it must be mentioned, Rush goes downstairs, and before he can even put some music on, makeouts happen. <laughs> yep. Finally gets them makeouts. They start making out, and uh, Max goes to grab the spyglass from under his bed, and he gets fucking assaulted. Yeah. In a, in a great, like, classic scary kids moment, a hand emerges from underneath the bed and grabs Max, and Max screams bloody murder. He tries to run away, pulls off the glove that that was on the hand in question to reveal, oh my god, it's a skeleton hand. Yeah. That's when that's when he like flips the fuck out and we get our commercial break. Imagine a world where time drifts slowly. A world where music carries you away. Experience pure moods, the perfect soundtrack for your way of life. When we come back, we pick up right where we left off, with this skeletal hand reaching out for Max and trying to pull him under the bed to hell. Uh, And Max is screaming and crying out, Rush, Rush, come help me, Rush. This is the last thing Rush wants to hear right now. Goes upstairs, he begs Sandy, he's like, just stay right here, I'll be right back. She says, I should go, and he's like, no, 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 don't leave, as he's running up the stairs. When he gets upstairs, whatever it is has let go of Max. Yeah, it doesn't appear like there's anything there at all. Uh, he threatens to kill Max, and he storms downstairs. Max doesn't want to stay upstairs in the bedroom by himself, so he follows. And when they get downstairs, Sandy is gone. Sandy has left without as much as a goodbye. There will be no more making out tonight. And so Rush takes his blue balls and goes straight to bed. He flips the fuck out on his little brother. He's like, get out of my life, bruh. Look, you little snot. I'm tired of you messing things up all the time. But the spyglass. I don't care. I don't care about your stories. I don't care about your problems. I don't care about you. I hate you. Get out of my life. Come on, man. You gotta be more chill than that. 
there will be other opportunities. Just keep rocking that shirt. I mean, (laughs) that shit's never going to go out of style. (laughs) You've got, you've got a solid gold thing, man. Rush storms off upstairs and Max is too afraid to go back into his bedroom. So he falls asleep on the couch. And that's when we get a, a, a sort of Gaussian blur, like surreal dream sequence. Yeah, somebody smeared Vaseline all over the camera. And we get this dream sequence where Rush is wandering through a graveyard. He wanders right up to a giant crypt, like an enormous metal door inside of a huge stone, creepy-ass crypt. And there's a noise coming from the other side of it. But before he can investigate it, a ghost appears right behind him. A very typical Are You Afraid of the Dark type ghost. Something we see a lot in season one. Where a ghost is just a regular person wearing lots and lots of white makeup with some fog surrounding them. And some white clothes on. Yeah. It's basically like the ghost from uh, The Hungry Hounds. Only this ghost happens to be the Irish pirate that we saw killed in the opening scene. He uh, is the same actor all ghosted up and he has uh, a slice across his throat a bloody slice that is not really like given too much detail or too much attention which i guess makes sense because it would be pretty gruesome i actually didn't even notice that like that's how de-emphasized it is but yeah they i mean it's there but which i kind of respect but they definitely pulled back on it and never gave it any focus and he gives he gives rush a cryptic message what he wants is not what he desires what Rush is like, that's stupid. What the fuck are you talking about? And the ghost just says it again. He's like, what he wants is not what he desires. And then Rush says, no, you should like give me some real info. And the ghost says, nah, man, I'm out. And just turns into fog and disappears. I was expecting him to just be like, yours be mine and mine be yours. (laughs) Yeah, it's the same accent. But no, Rush is given this cryptic hint. uh, And then right after the ghost disappears, the crypt slowly opens. And Rush is attacked by the vines from the movie Evil Dead. You know the ones. Yeah! What was up with that? Yeah. Uh, rather than a ghost appearing out of this crypt, which would make sense, he's attacked by vines that grab him and pull him inside the crypt. So we're obviously dealing with, like, the ghost of Poison Ivy. Before we could answer that question, uh, Rush wakes up it, somehow in his bed. He's wearing a, yet another enormous uh, shirt. Yeah, well, it's a sleep shirt, man. You know, you just wear a big old t-shirt. I don't sleep in a shirt. Well, I mean, I don't either. I don't sleep in anything. <laughs> All right, well, that's that's enough of that. Uh, did you like how... I don't his... really sleep naked. <laughs> you hear that? <laughs> Buck naked. I don't even wear pajamas. Normally, I sleep naked. Buck naked. Ha! Morning, Mr. McGuire. Mary Catherine. <laughs> I, I'm just kidding. I sleep in a pair of shorts. Uh, anyway, uh, the next day... He wakes up, hold on, we gotta talk about this. He wakes up in his bed, and on the wall behind him, he's got, like, a very teenager collage of posters. But did you catch what the theme of his posters is? Is this, a, is this your official random observation of crap in the background? There's not a really solid piece of, of, of entertaining sort of something in the background here. No, I just wanted to casually observe that, like, he has a collage of, like, chopped up poster pieces and, like, magazine cutouts and stuff on his wall. It's a very teen collage. But the kind of theme, and there are pieces that don't exactly fit this theme, but the thing that you see the most are, like, women's lips and eyes, like, these sort of, like, comic book babes. They look like the pinups that you would see on, like, World War II planes, and it's just these, like, 
glimpses of images of babes postered all over his wall behind his bed, which I appreciated. That's a that's a unique aesthetic for him to go for. I just like that, like, that's his theme. Like, his brother's half of the room is totally decked out in pirate stuff. But Rush is just into ladies, and he has nothing but ladies on his wall. We, I think we've established pretty well at this point that is his... His M.O. Ladies are the object of his obsession. Yeah. So he wakes up, and he sees the spyglass sitting on the table. And since in his dream, the spyglass is what led him to the crypt, he looks inside of it. And sure enough... Inside the spyglass, he doesn't see, like, what's in front of him magnified. When he looks through it, it's as though he's looking onto the cemetery, the graveyard, at night. He's seeing his dream play out all over again through the spyglass. You're going to have to help me with what happens after this, because the second half of this episode uh, is a bit all over the place. There's a scene missing in my brain. Yeah, well, this episode very much follows the, like, Sardo or, like, Dr. Vink, like the really bonkers type stories that you get in Are You Afraid of the Dark, where it does go all over the place. But the first thing that Rush does is the thing that would make the most sense. He goes back to the Magic Mansion to ask Sardo, what the fuck? Oh, yeah. Sardo is really excited to find him, too. He's like, oh, man, you have to take the rest of this stuff. And he says, I don't want the rest of this stuff. This thing is weird as shit. And he says, no, 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 you have to. I don't get my money unless you take the stuff. And uh, Rush says, I don't give two craps about your money. And he sets the spyglass down on the counter, and he walks away. He, like, storms out of the door. And when he does, Sardo looks despondent. He's like, oh, man, now I'm not going to get my money. But who should appear but a mysterious figure in a cloak? And a familiar voice says, The items belong to him now. He's just not ready to accept them. And the cloak drapes over the spyglass, and the spyglass disappears. Yeah, who could this mysterious, familiar voice be? Yeah, someone is up to something, and their machinations involve uh, Rush and these treasure items and Sardo, who who this mysterious figure has offered to pay $5,000 once everything is said and done. I mean, $5,000, that was like $50,000 in early 90s money, right? Something like that, yeah. Back in the world of the story. Yeah, we cut back to Max, who is, uh, he's finally brave enough to go back into his room, but turns out that was a mistake, and he was right to hide downstairs, because as soon as he gets back into his bedroom, weird shit starts happening again. The windows open, fog rolls in, he's being accosted by freaky-ass ghosts. When Rush gets back, he similarly encounters some paranormal shit in their room. Uh, he hears noises, he opens the closet, and he finds a terrifying note impaled on the door using a, a cutlass. This is straight out of the movie Hook, right? You remember the scene in Hook where they open the door yeah. and the sword oh, yeah. is... Yeah, this is like that scene, just verbatim. And all it says is, like, I got your little brother. You got to come get him. He says, this is no dream. I have the boy. Yeah. So at this point, Rush is freaking out. Uh, he goes to, to, like, run downstairs or run outside and find Max. Uh, but he stumbles He runs upon... outside because their house is on, like, a, a beachfront. Yeah, uh, And he sees Max staring out into the water as a, a creepy rowboat slowly rows to the shore. As this boat rows up, you can't see really the person who's rowing it. They're under like a huge cloak, and they have their back to the boys. But when the boat hits the shore, they just stop rowing and sit there until Rush comes over and like spins the guy around. Which, of course, anytime a person is just sitting there and you spin them around because they're not moving, what happens? It's a skeleton. It's a fucking it's skeleton. always a skeleton. Yeah. So he spins this person around only to find out that they're they're not a real person. They're a skeleton. 
But don't worry, Rush, because they very quickly turn into a person. Yeah, in a sort of amazing effect that I didn't expect to see in this show. Flesh grows and materializes on this skeletal face, and it turns into a nasty old pirate. It's like when someone melts in Indiana Jones, but in reverse. Yeah, like, I'm, it doesn't look great by modern standards, but by Nickelodeon standards, it is sort of incredible. Oh, for sure. Yeah, uh, it's this dirty old pirate uh, with, like, a crazy face, and he just starts cackling at the boys as Rush grabs Max and runs him back inside. Yeah, Max is in this almost catatonic state. Rush just grabs him and they run back to the house, but the, the nasty old pirate is there waiting for them. He's just, like, laughing up a storm. Uh, he corners the boys, like, they are stuck between him and their front door. So they try to run back out the front door, but it opens on its own. Bright white light is just beaming through this door, and a monster hulking silhouette appears. And the figure steps into the room, and who is it? But two-time Emmy Award winner, Charles S. Dutton. Yep, Charles S. Dutton, dressed in, like, bad George Washington cosplay, and a scar over his eye... <laughs> That kind of makes him look like Forrest Whitaker. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> He's got that lazy eye. Charles Dutton playing the titular Cutter, who steps in and says, Did you really think you had a chance against me, Skipper? Crazy, like, lunatic pirate grabs Rush and restrains him. And Cutter just picks up Max, just, like, lifts him in the air and then puts him under his arm like he's a like a log or something, and laughs as he carries Max out. Yeah, he says, say goodbye to the boy. I'm going to use him for stuff. And then walks back out into the, the bright white light. And the instant that, that Charles S. Dutton disappears, his creepy minion pirate, whose name is, I think, Mr. Noise, Mr. Noise! Uh, also just vanishes into thin air. And Rush bolts out to the, to the water to see these two pirates rowing away on the rowboat, with Max in tow. Yeah, in a panic, Rush turns around to head back to the house, and that's when he finds the uh, the spyglass sitting right where they left it on the stump. So he grabs the spyglass, knowing you know he doesn't know what else to do, and he looks inside of it. And inside the spyglass, he sees the pirates carrying Max into the crypt from his dream. I really like that ending. I really like the, the foreshadowing. Yeah, that was like, it brought everything together really well. And at that moment, we get Gary and Frank's narration. And they say that at this point, there was only one thing that Rush could think to do and only one person he could think to go to. And before they can go any further, we start hearing a storm brewing. We hear thunder and rain and we cut back to the Midnight Society. A torrent of rain just falls on them. Yeah. And Frank the and Gary say insist... they'll have to pick up the story next time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gary and Frank say that it's gonna be it's to be continued, and they dump the water on the fire, and everyone runs off to, into the woods as a storm just starts raging. For the first time in the history of the show, we get a to be continued graphic at the bottom of the screen, and then as we hit the rock and awesome theme song. Rock and awesome theme song. So that's the tale of Cutter's treasure, part one. This was definitely something else. This is. You said DJ was being indulgent at the beginning of this episode. I meant it. This really is some next-level shit for Are You Afraid of the Dark? I mean, it's a Sardo story. It has crazy special effects. It's got, you know, a lot of sort of costuming, a whole bunch of a whole bunch of different sets. Like, there is a whole lot going on in this episode, and it's just people running back and forth like crazy. There are makeouts. 
Yeah. There's implied uh, throat slitting. Yep. Yeah, there's murder. So this is a really intense episode, and DJ is just sort of throwing everything but the kitchen sink in there. Did you enjoy this episode? I was afraid that I was going to be bored by it. I don't know why, but I went into this episode just like really worried that it was going to be boring. And even when part, when I started watching part two, I was afraid of that. But no, this was this managed to keep my attention and be fun throughout. What about you? I, I really enjoyed it for the most part. I feel like it kind of dragged a little bit at times because this is a two-part story. I feel like they kind of had to pad out the first part to get it to feature length with with the constant running back and forth in the house during uh, exactly. Rush's date with Sandy. Uh, and then during the second half, it just feels kind of slow until we hit that awesome uh, finale with, with Charles S. Dutton as Cutter. Yeah, the... If I was to compare the weakest moments of this episode to anything, I would compare them to the Whispering Walls, where Cheyenne and I complained the oh, whole no. lot of it. Yeah, well, and, and I mean that in a very, like, uh, structural sense, because the tale of the Whispering Walls was a story where kids were being accosted by ghosts, and they were just running back and forth from one place to another. Like, they would get scared by something, and then they'd run back to another spot and get some exposition. And then they'd go back into the house and get scared some more, and then they'd run back out and learn a little bit more of the story. And it was just a whole bunch of back and forth. Uh, there's a lot of that in this episode where people are running around getting scared, but not a lot really happens. Um, the thing that saves this episode, I think, is how fun the characters are. Like, yeah, if the makeout scenes weren't so funny, then the back and forth between Rush downstairs and Max upstairs would not have been good. But the stuff with Rush is good. The scary hand with Max is good, and so it takes what would otherwise be a weak structure and kind of, like, keeps it together just enough. And then the fact that it ends on a cliffhanger makes all of that worth it. You'd think that it's gonna have to just really rush the ending, because so much nothing has happened in the middle. Uh, And the fact that, no, we get a big story, like you find out this is gonna be huge, uh, that's pretty cool. This almost feels like, we mentioned, this is the first episode of season four. And in some ways, this almost feels like a victory lap for Are You Are You Afraid of the Dark? They've made it this far because there's a lot of stuff that feels like a celebration of what we've seen in previous episodes. Yeah. Like Sardo appears. Dr. Vink appears. Spoiler. We get the callback to Shandu. We get the callback to the Dark Dragon. We get the scene with the skeletal hand trying to pull someone to drag them to hell, which to me felt like an homage to uh, Tale dark of Dark music. music. Oh, yeah, for sure. And a very familiar two young protagonist dynamic where it's douchebag older brother, snotty little brother. We see a lot of stuff we've seen before, but it doesn't feel like they're just rehashing it. It feels more like a celebration of all this stuff that has made Are You Afraid of the Dark great. Yeah, which is good. And I wonder if that was a deliberate thing on TJ's part, if he wanted to kind of celebrate season four of the show that way. Uh, either way, this is this draws on a lot of the stuff that we've enjoyed with Are You Afraid of the Dark, and it comes together, for the most part, really well. Well, and, you know, a little bit of foreshadowing here. Uh, this is we, We've talked in the past about how Frank doesn't get as many stories as everyone else, it seems. This is one of two Frank stories this season. He, he will be a part of the Tale of Cutter's Treasure, and he tells the last story of the season. And uh, I, I think there's something happening there, too. Yeah, this is, this is, again, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, we're going to be saying some goodbyes at the end of this season. And uh, I think this episode, this, this arc, like uh, you is said, important. I think, it's a, I think it's a victory lap, yeah. But for as much as we enjoyed it, we have to ask the question. So, Eli, say it true. You scared of this? 
Um, you know, there are episodes of this show where even as an adult, I've said, yeah, that was scary. Like, if, if I fell asleep watching this episode, I would have a nightmare of it, and it would scare the shit out of me. This was not one of those episodes. It's not an episode that has anything that, like, gets under my skin as an adult. Um, it is an episode, maybe, that, as a kid, the the bedroom scene would have scared me if I was young enough. You know, like, if I was between six and eight years old, and a pirate skeletal hand reached out from under the bed in a show probably gonna scare me the scene where mr noise turns from a skeleton into a pirate probably gonna scare me but it's kind of hard to be scared of the rest of it when most of the paranormal stuff that happens involves like a spyglass spinning around you know yeah i have not seen the second half of this episode or of this story arc yet uh but i assumed watching this this was setting up a, a lot of bigger scares in part two so We'll see next week if it lives up to that expectation. Yeah, but for now, I'm comfortable saying, no, not scared. I will echo that for all of the same reasons I was not scared of this. Though as a kid, especially that scene where uh, Mr. Noise's face regenerates, uh, that probably would have freaked me out. But as an adult, no. Good episode, not terrible scary. So that's the that's the end of part one of the Tale of Cutter's Treasure. Next week we will be back, of course, with the Tale of Cutter's Treasure Part Two, uh, written by Chloe Brown, directed by DJ McHale, told by Gary and Frank. And uh, yeah, until then, let us know what you thought of the Tale of Cutter's Treasure. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com/slash You Scared of This. You can hit us up on Twitter uh, at You Scared of This. All of our back catalog is on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash this, And we always appreciate it if you leave us a rating or review on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe. Until then, we will see you next week. See you then. The Tale of Poker's Hoagie. Oh, pause. I have to tell you, that reminds me. I was at Target yesterday, and this kid was buying Pokemon cards with his mom. And you could tell she wanted them to buy, like, the smallest amount of Pokemon cards they could, right? Uh, And they were looking at all the really, really big sets. And one of the kids goes and gets one of the binders that you put your cards in. And he's like, look at this, Mom. It's an even bigger binder. And she goes, yeah, but why don't you just use the binder you have? And he goes, there's not enough room. And she goes, well, why don't you take out the cards you never use? And she even mentions a specific type of card. She's like, why don't you take out the cards you never use and put those in a box and all your favorite cards you keep in your binder? Because you have cards that aren't rare and you have like a million of the same card. Just put those in a box. So this mom knows what's up. And the kid who's like maybe six years old, like I don't think he can read yet. He goes, no, I need this binder. It could hold a million cards. And he hands it to her. And she looks at it for a second and says, this says 900. And he goes, yeah, yeah, like a million cards. And she goes, well, it says 900. And he goes, I know, that's like a million. It could hold like a million cards. And she shakes her head and walks off. And he goes, wow, a million cards. And he goes to his older <laughs> he goes to his older brother and he's like, check this thing out. It could hold a million cards. 
And his brother goes, really? And he goes, yeah, mom said it can hold 900. And his older brother looks at him like he's the dumbest fuck on the planet and goes, those aren't even the same thing. And just storms off. <laughs> this kid has such a, a loose grasp of how numbers work that anything, any number that's three digits or more might as well be a million. I just assume that like because he's never had to deal with a million of anything, like a million just means a lot. Anyway, that's how much the $5,000 was worth to Sardo. It was like a million dollars. Yeah.